surveying my own life uh, in nearly two decades of ministry in two different churches, uh, very different churches demographically, um, I've just I've come to agree with many others that the most powerful and I think the most vulnerable thing about us is our imagination. Our formation of ideas and of images that shape our motivation, that shape our hope and our expectation, as well as our fears and our doubts and our delusions. uh, The British poet Percy Shelley said, the great instrument of moral good is the imagination. While French philosopher Jules de Gautier said, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. Pretty strong. Mark Twain wrote, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. While related, Henry Ward Beecher said, the soul without imagination is what an observatory would be without a telescope. An instrument or a weapon, a powerful lens, vulnerable. I didn't see my father from ages five to nine and only spoke to him twice in that time. But I remember how consumed my imagination was with him, particularly in the two years intervening before I met my stepfather. I paid a lot of attention, actually, to how my friends' dads looked and how they talked and how they moved and how they dressed and how they smelled. My dad was wearing a mustache the last time I saw him in Lake City, Florida uh, at that time, and he smelled great. Mustaches and fragrances, let's be honest, were probably a little out of control in the early 80s. But because of these kinds of things, my imagination was always active, vivid, creating and energizing my wonder and my hope and that singular desire for my father, the hope of seeing him, or at the very least having some, you know, putting together some image of him that was closest to reality. When he did show up in my life again, driving a Camaro, wearing aviator sunglasses, and donning his mustache, smelling of Karl Lagerfeld cologne, it became one of the most vivid and enduring memories of my life because it was a collision of my imagination with sensation, my hope with expectation, with reality. And maybe you've got memories that are that vivid in your own life, and they are only that vivid having lived them because of the imagination that fed them. That's how powerful and that's how vulnerable our imaginations are. And I'm honestly concerned in our day that our imaginations are even more vulnerable, that our ideas, our images are less likely to be stable or fruitful or restful or hopeful. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you feel it in your bones. Maybe uh, we're less apt to, to have imaginations that can keep us situated and oriented, that aren't easily overthrown by stress, or even monotony, or the powerful influence of our expanding media. I think it's gotten more challenging for us to resist the thinness the, of our self-interested imagination. The way we think about ourselves in late modern Western culture, that, that imagination that tells me what I should believe and even imagine emanates from within me. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he calls this expressive individualism. It all comes from me, and I know ultimately. And it's an obvious overreaction, let's be honest, to a time that often just it did confine individuals to, and, their, and their imaginations to merely a role or a group or a stereotype. It was painful 
Societal structures and norms could be oppressive. But now the overreaction is arguably both the cause and I think the ongoing consequence of the anxiety and the loneliness and even the tribalism that has gripped our society. And you know what it's doing? It's starving the healthy imagination of our young people. That is not an opinion. That is a fact. You can read the reports and the statistics. Why is our imagination so powerful and also so vulnerable? Probably because it's so powerful. Why is that? Because it's how we were made. It's what we are. It's who we are. Imagination is what makes humans unique among creation. Neurobiologist and psychologist Kurt Thompson, he puts it this way. It's powerful. He says, we come into the world looking for someone looking for us. We're looking for a face first. For recognition and for connection. If you think about it, a mother not only feeds a child's body with her own body, she feeds his imagination with her face and her voice and the smell of her breath and the texture and the temperature of her skin. She begins to shape his sense of self from moment one. In his latest book, uh, Andy Crouch, the, the book is The Life We're Looking For. I would recommend it. He, says, he puts it this way. He says, recognition is the first human quest. Recognition. And I don't believe that that quest for recognition ever ends. For a face, for, for someone looking for us, it ever ends because I think the soul-deep recognition that we're all looking for really comes from someone else looking for us. And to know that's true and to live like it, it comes from the desire to see the face of God in the risen Jesus. Maybe even to feel his scars for ourselves and maybe even to show him ours. Connection and recognition. And that recognition, that grounding, I believe, actually comes from the desire to be seen by God. For who we really are, to be fully known. Because we don't know who we fully are. And I believe most of our lives are actually lived pursuing this. Through mostly other means. We've written it down, as John was told, but we as Christians have even forgotten it. So having said all that, my first point is this. There is a battle for your powerful and your vulnerable imagination. And I don't think that's putting it too strongly. And I think that probably most of you feel it. There's often a, there is an often subtle but strong assault on what Israel called before us and we call shalom, order and goodness and blessing, peace for God's sake. Shalom is a beautiful idea, but you know what? It's in search of action. It begins in imagination, and it takes shape in cooperation, which is harder and harder to come by in a world of expressive individualism. History tells us painfully that humans actually, we need help in the pursuit of shalom. We need help from God, we need help from one another, but mostly from God. And I believe our imaginations, hear, hear this very clearly, I believe that our imaginations, what our ideas and our images, those are the leverage point for pursuing shalom in our own hearts and in our world. Wendell Berry said, the imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see as whole and holy what we perceive as scattered. To be able to, to see as order, he said, what we perceive as random. Imagination. And this is why Christians, 
this is why we gather around the fire of a story, so to speak, and why we tell it every Sunday morning at our best. It's a story of redemption. It's actually about that shalom that we desire, that, that, that has to come within and then from without, and then without, bringing order to our imaginations first, the way we are, are ordered in God, so that we can actually seek shalom without in our relationships and in our culture. As an aside, I think there's a whole lot of shalom-seeking without that doesn't exist within in our culture. People not at peace trying to enforce some kind of peace out there. And it, this, this shalom, this imagination, it anticipates the full and final arrival of help of this divine goodness and blessing. And this is what the Apostle John saw while he was in exile on the island, this tiny island of Patmos. He saw shalom. Shalom that exists now and is invulnerable and a shalom that will come to us and is inevitable. Late in his life and ministry, John, he became this, this chosen vessel of God to ignite the imagination of the church. That's what's going on here. Of seven churches in Asia Minor who are struggling within and without. The Roman Empire had conquered the whole world in concrete and iron. They were holding sway over everyone's imagination. Followers of the way of Jesus, they faced withering persecution and just the constant temptation to walk away from it, to abandon the path. Why? Jesus had not returned yet, and maybe he's not coming back at all. Now what? And so while John is in a deep place of prayer and worship, because what else are you going to do on an island, tiny island in exile? I'm sure, I mean... Sometimes I wish I was on an island and I know I would pray more, right? Like I read this, he's in a deep place of prayer and worship. He's in the spirit on the day of the Lord. And Jesus appears to him and he says, write the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place later. Those that already are and those that are to take place later. And here's the thing, Revelation is a vision for their imaginations and for ours. It's a curtain an apocalyptic being pulled back, its reality being shown, the reality of the present and the reality of the future. It's the throne room of God as it was at the moment, and it's a, the vision of a new world that awaits and everything in between. It's meant to just spark the imaginative horsepower to keep them and us connected to Jesus, to the Jesus who not only did something way back when on the cross, but the Jesus who is actually reigning now. Invisible, but still powerful in the messy middle. The messy middle they were living and the one that we're living now between Christ's ascension and his return. As you probably know, I mean, there's no shortage of ideas about what Revelation means, but it's so full of symbolism. There is no denying that. And as hard as interpreters have tried over the centuries, we're just simply not able to connect all of these dots and all of the symbolism into one neat end times program that delivers on all the meaning. I like the way that G.K. Chesterton called uh, what, how he talked about this attempt to describe it all. He said, it's like the, you're talking about the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell and obsession. But that's not what Revelation is about. It's not the point of John's poetic and prophetic vision. There is much mystery about the details, but that's not the point. What is the point? The point is pastoral. Jesus is pastoring the early church through troubled waters. In his opening address, 
John calls himself, listen, this is important. John calls himself their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The tribulation, as he understands it, is already happening here. It's already so witheringly difficult and hard to follow Jesus. They knew that some of the things John saw were being fulfilled in their day, including the destruction of the temple and the great persecution that happened from the emperors uh, Caligula to Nero. And around this point, Nero has just committed suicide and thrown the whole world into disarray, politically and otherwise. So John's revelation is as important, I think, as anything in the whole of Scripture. It was for them, but also for us. Why? Because it provides this whole and holy imagination. So let me just talk about a couple of things we see here. First of all, it's a vision of heaven as it was and as it is. He has a vision, John has a vision of what the throne room of God is like at present as the tribulation they are suffering ensues and maybe gets worse. And heaven is the word shamayim in Hebrew, oranios in Greek. And both of these words can actually mean two things, either the sky above or the invisible realm. And people back then, I think, were way more interesting linguistically than we are today. We use two separate words for sky and heaven, but their reasoning for one word is sound because, uh, because it basically has to do with how you experience that. In both cases, there is far more than meets the eye. You can't see everything. Heaven is the realm you can't see. Sky, you can keep looking, but you can't see all of it, and you can't see its depths. Not nearly. But for John, this reality that he's talking about with heaven, it's one connected materiality. It's not these two realms per se. It's actually he's seeing a marriage of the seen and the unseen, the known and the unknown. Heaven, as it turns out, it's, just, it's not some immaterial people, spirits floating around on clouds playing translucent harps, right? It's not some immaterial spiritual world, but a perfect divine, material reality beyond our conception and experience, where John can see the real fate. At this moment, he's seeing the real fate of those from every tribe and every nation who was, were suffering for Christ in that day. He's saying, you saw them lying prone and bloodied in the Colosseum. I see them standing in white robes before the throne. Their blood was not the final word. Christ's blood has redeemed them, and they are alive. And here's an important thing we need to remember in what comes to us through this story. Uh, The story of God, as far as we know it, it begins with the material universe, provides a flesh and blood Jesus, will resurrect material bodies from death, and one day will manifest in a visible kingdom. One of the most dangerous ideas for Christians, and one of the things that makes our imagination most vulnerable, is this separation ultimately, of the spiritual and the natural. Christians believe otherwise. Reality is ultimately one materiality, a realm destined for shalom in a material universe. This is why John sees a reality. It's not the end, it's a new beginning. This is what baptism tells us in our own individual lives. Our baptismal death is really a birth. It's a new beginning. And so through us and in us and through the church, heaven is breaking into what is seen and what is felt and what is lived through God's empowering spirit. And our worship and our work as priests, not just this priest, but you priests, our worship and our work as priests rightly imagined is actually how we tell this story of the union of heaven and earth. As both a present reality 
but also an eventuality, as I said. So in case you're not aware of this, that's what this service is about. Do you know that? It's meant to put us in the imagination of the unseen by means of the seen. We are truly a kingdom of priests who already gather with the saints and the angels at the throne of God, worshiping forever, but beginning right now. Are you with me? Worshiping forever, but beginning right now. Connected. If you had told me when I was 21 that I would be wearing a white robe on Sundays, every Sunday, I would have asked you if you had bumped your head on the way in. No, could imagine that. But today I wear it not to be fancy or important, but I actually wear this to remind you and to remind me that our shared destiny is right there in Revelation 7, 9. The throne room of God washed of all that this world has brought us and brought you. To the seven churches and to us, even a seeming hell on earth cannot separate us from heaven. Not ultimately. The entire realm of the Lord's rule has invaded our lives and our world in the victory of Jesus that we proclaim. What has begun in us and the world will one day be complete in us and in the world. It's fantastic news because man, the middle feels messy, doesn't it? Second, we get this vision of a city, and this is not to be thrown away. It's important. And I know for the beekeepers and the granola types in here, you're imagining heaven is in the country. But honestly, the country is in the city in what comes and what he sees. Don't worry. There are trees and rivers here too. This is a vital image. The new heaven and the new earth, these are not an escape from, from uh, the city, but they are a healing of the worst of humanity's efforts that happen to be concentrated in the cities we make, in the communities we make. The first city, if you think about it, Enoch was built by the first murderer and it was destroyed in the flood. The second city, Babel, was built in an arrogant attempt to storm heaven, but was abandoned in confusion. When John gives us his vision of judgment in chapter 18, it was a city being destroyed. Babylon, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So the great project of idolatry that cities so often were they cave in on themselves. The inescapable shadow of Rome will be banished when the city is renewed. John sees that the renewal of all things is actually formed out of dirty streets and murderous alleys and adulterous bedrooms and corrupt courts and hypocritical synagogues, commercialized churches, thieving tax collectors, and traitorous disciples. It's a city, but this time it's holy with healing leaves and trees and life-giving rivers. And here's the other thing. It's not just any city. It's Jerusalem. The cramped, the thou- by this point, thousand-year-old city that David captured from the Jebusites and then dishonored with his adultery and murder. It's the city that became infamous for child sacrifices and unlawful sorceries. It's the city that mocked Jeremiah, the city that ignored Isaiah and twice dis- was twice dis- destroyed in judgment by Babylon and then Rome. Shabbily rebuilt in the interim by Nehemiah. So when Jesus, you know, he came to Jerusalem, and what did he, how did he feel? And then what did he say? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing and stoning those sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not behold your house is forsaken and desolate. But what does John see? A new Jerusalem. Jerusalem renewed. A new world will be built out of the toppled bricks and mortar, so to speak of all of our brother-hating Enoch, 
God-defying Babel, Christ-rejecting Jerusalem excuses for community and society. God will redeem cities like theirs and cities like ours. And let me just say this. I love Greenville, and I love a lot of things about Greenville. But we need not forget that there are people in our own attractive city who have serious reasons for looking for a better city than this one. And maybe that's you. A city that has true foundations whose architect and builder is God, as Hebrews 11 says. Because Greenville ain't working for them as much as it might be working for us. As the church, we should be even asking ourselves if we're living in this city with an imagination for that one. I hope you'll trust me when I say this, that an imagination for that city will change the way you live in this one. And lastly, John's vision is one of God's presence. And I think this is the best news here. Chapter 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them as their, with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And this is a moment of recognition. Of redemption. All this fleeting comfort that we have known in life will be transfigured as God's own hand wipes away all of our tears and all the reasons for our tears, even their possibility, and our longing for God, that face-to-face that we cry out about in our, in our Eucharist service will come to fruition. Our longing for God will finally be met. He won't be in a temple that's vulnerable to marauding armies or emptied out after one generation fails to teach the next one. In this new reality, the temple will be our God, John says, filling every heart and every square inch with his presence and his love. A flood of shalom. It's just, it's hard to imagine. Because no longer will we sink into obscurity and forgottenness when our spouse has died or when our depression reaches new lows or our friends outgrow us. Fill in the blank. As John says later in chapter 21, the light of God himself will splash on every forehead. There won't be a need for a sun or a moon. There will be no dark corners. No dark corners where abuse happen and where neglect strips God's beloved of dignity and hope. The lamb who suffered in deep darkness will be the light. The light of God's presence will radiate order and will announce the end of empires and kingdoms ruled by despots and politicians who fail their constituency but fatten themselves. They knew it then and we know it now, this reality. John also says that the gates and the doors won't need to be shut. Are you afraid? But we'll finally be free from the nagging sense of our vulnerability and our longing just to rest from worry. This is the Christian imagination. This is the marriage of God's invisible, invulnerable throne with our all-too-visible, vulnerable world. This is the space in which we live and worship and work. This imagination is what moves and emboldens us in the here and now. Let me close with what the rabbi, uh, Jewish theologian, Abraham Heschel wrote. He wrote this. He said, the cry for a life beyond the grave is presumptuous if there is no cry for an eternal life prior to the grave. What are we crying for? What are we imagining now is what he's saying. He says, eternity is not perpetual future, but perpetual presence. 
God is with us. That's John's message. Heaven and earth are one materiality and reality that are ours in Jesus. Friends, the cry for eternity is our present occupation and preoccupation. What we're doing already is crying for something rich and lasting. Even if we think it can be found somewhere other than God, other than in God, in another face or in another future. So I just want to pray that the Lord Jesus would give us the imagination to know all the more that our longings are only fully met in Him. That we, like the saints before us, what they lived for, what they died for, we are really looking for someone looking for us. And He is longing for us and living in us. He's the one who came for us. And He is coming for us. Do you believe it? Lord, strengthen us in our vulnerable imaginations. Lord, just help us in our quest for meaning. It's hard. It's embattled. We've made a world more capable just of distracting and subduing us than ever before. Meaning is getting lost. The truth within us is letting us down. But we still believe that it's for freedom that you've set us free. And as ever, we're just asking for your help. We're asking for more heaven to break, Lord, into our homes, into our families, and into our lives as we await what you have in store, as we fix our eyes on that which is true, even when we can't see it. Help us to wait faithfully, Lord. Fill us with hope, and let our hope be contagious. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.